Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is episode 16. In this show, we return to medieval Ireland in an episode that will bring the 11th century to life. We will see what battle was like, what people ate, where they lived, right down to the sounds and smells of the medieval world. On this journey through daily life, we will look at Ireland from the perspective of one of the few known visitors to the island in the 11th century, Godwin Godwinson, the son of the Anglo-Saxon king of England, Harald Godwinson, who came to Ireland in 1067. Godwin Godwinson's story begins like so many others from this period, amid the carnage of a battlefield. At Hastings in the southeast of England on October the 14th, 1066, an Anglo-Saxon army led by their king, Harald Godwinson, faced down an invading Norman force led by William the Conqueror. In a fierce battle that raged for hours, the Saxons held the Normans at bay. However, by evening, their line began to falter against repeated Norman cavalry charges, and eventually they were routed. Amid the thunder of heavy cavalry, the clash of swords and shields, and the cries of pain, Harald Godwinson, the Saxon king, was struck by an arrow through the eye and was killed. After the battle, Harald's family fled north, but resistance to the Normans crumbled. By 1067, Harald's family had to flee England, and the 27-year-old son Godwin, along with his brother Edwin and cousin Tostig, fled west to Ireland. As potential heirs, if they were captured, they would end up in captivity or possibly be executed. While other members of the family went to Denmark and the continent, Godwin led his younger brother and cousin west, hoping to find aid from the reigning king of Leinster, Diarmid Machmuel Namo, a man who had already given their father Harald sanctuary in the 1050s. Although we know they came to Ireland in 1067, little detail is known about their exact movements. I have taken the liberty to ascribe a journey to these three Saxon fugitives to allow us to gain an insight into the world of medieval Ireland. All the upcoming gory details about medieval Ireland are based on historical and archaeological evidence. 
The voyage Godwin and his relatives took west to Ireland was like any other long-distance journey in the Middle Ages, fraught with danger. Sea travel in the medieval period was a very risky business. When they reached a port on the west coast of Britain, Godwin, Edwin and Tostig may have had to wait for days on the coast for the weather to clear. Going to sea in stormy conditions in the medieval period would have meant certain death. Over a century later, in October 1171, when the first Norman king to cross to Ireland, Henry II, gathered his fleet at Milford Haven in Wales, he would have to wait 16 days until the weather cleared before he could travel. As our three Saxons set sail, they had no choice but to face the dangers of the sea. Boats in the 11th century were small open vessels, no wider than a few metres across and not much longer than a small fishing trawler. Had a storm blown up, this tiny ship would have been tossed about on huge waves and easily sank. Death at sea was a common occurrence, so much so that in the 13th century, when the prior of St Mary's Abbey in Dublin left Ireland on business affairs, he was not allowed to take the monastery's charters which he needed. Instead, the priory engaged in the lengthy and costly process of copying the documents, as in their words, the pearls of the sea were too great. Despite these dangers, this party of Anglo-Saxons survived the journey, arriving in the port of Dublin under the control of their father's one-time ally, the Gaelic King of Leinster, Dermot Mochmwell Namov. The city had been founded over two centuries earlier, had established a small trading post in the mid-9th century. By the late 10th century, the port had been taken under the control of neighbouring Gaelic kings, first the O'Neills, then Brian Baru of Munster, and in the mid-11th century, the King of Leinster, Diarmid. The medieval city was situated on the south bank of the River Liffey, close to where the River Estuary opened into Dublin Bay. In 1067, Godwin, Edwin and Tostig entered a Dublin unrecognisable to us today. Much of the east end of the 21st century city, areas like Ringsend, East Wall, Fairview and Irishtown were still underwater, only to be reclaimed in later centuries, while the River Liffey itself was an enormous meandering river up to 300 metres wide in some parts. As their ship docked at Dublin's quays, the safety of the wall city with its thatched houses, shops and churches nestled on the sloping bank of the River Liffey can only have been a welcome sight. Stepping off the cramped conditions of the ship, Godwin and his relatives passed through the city's substantial defences constructed largely of earth and wood. These stout embankments were formidable, having endured a three-month siege by Brian Baru's forces in the autumn of 1013. Indeed, they would last till around 1100, when they would be replaced by a stone wall. Having spent the previous day in the fresh sea air, the three visitors would have been overwhelmed by the pungent smell when they entered medieval Dublin. The smells of animals, human waste, rotting food and wood smoke which emanated from the cramped houses and the city's cesspits combined to form an eye-watering aroma that wafted through the narrow city lanes and streets. These narrow winding streets 
were bounded on each side by one-roomed houses with walls made of mud, plastered on a mesh of saplings, roofed with thatch. They were sub-rectangular in shape and centred around a fireplace. There was no chimney in these houses. Instead, smoke built up in the rafters, and as Godwin walked by these early Dublin houses, smoke would have been seeping from the dark interiors through the doors. Inside, in the very smoky atmosphere, these houses must have been very unhealthy. However, life expectancy was short, and many died long before respiratory illnesses could have killed them, while the smoke itself did prevent bacteria growing in the thatch of the roofs. The streets themselves were lined with hurdles, wooden planks which helped to give grip. If our three Anglo-Saxons had arrived in wet weather, these nonetheless would have been incredibly slippy. As they walked up from the city quays through the narrow streets, the most striking building in 11th century Dublin would have been Christchurch Cathedral, which had been built 40 years earlier in the late 1020s. Located in the dead centre of the settlement, it symbolised the changing nature of the city's once pagan Norse fathers who had converted to Christianity. This city of the 11th century was a noisy place, but in a very different manner than Dublin today. Then the background noise came from craftsmen like blacksmiths hammering to the chorus of the many farm animals kept inside the city. Walls and houses were thin, so any visitor would have been treated to a live soap opera as they passed each individual house. Privacy, as we know it, did not exist. Passing shops and stalls, Godwin, Edwin and Tostig would have heard conversations in several tongues, Gaelic-Irish, Norse, their own language, English and possibly French as Dublin attracted traders from across Europe. A difference in dress would have been noticeable too. The Gaelic-Irish wore an ankle-length sleeveless tunic known as a lena, the Gaelic for shirt, made from linen worn next to the skin. This was covered by a brath a sort of cloak which was rectangular and could be wrapped around the body several times and was secured to the breast with a brooch. In some cases, men wore trousers when working outside or riding horses. Gaelic women would have covered their heads in a veil, something that had been introduced in the early 9th century. Aside from this, men and women wore the same clothes, except for trousers which seemed to have been exclusive to men. Incidentally, it's worth noting Contrary to modern misconceptions, no one wore a kilt. Those of Scandinavian descent in the city who were still adhering to the dress code of their forefathers wore a shorter tunic than the Gaelic Irish, which was cut to the knee with trousers underneath. They also wore a large cloak over these undergarments. In terms of footwear, the wealthy wore shoes made from a single piece of leather. These, however, would have been far too expensive for the poorer people who probably wore a soleless woollen sock on their feet, which were worn in parts of the west of Ireland until the early 20th century. Aside from their clothes, the various different groups had very different hairstyles as well. Some of the Gaelic-Irish appeared to have cut their hair in a style known as a coulon. The word coulon comes from the Gaelic word cool, meaning back. This saw them shave the top of their heads and grow a mullet of sorts from the back. The Vikings, again, if they were maintaining the traditions of their forefathers, grew pretty banal haircuts in comparison. Hair to shoulder length was common. 
strange and exotic as this city may sound, medieval Dublin for Godwin, Edwin and Tostig would have not been strange or mesmerising. Not only had they seen many settlements like it in England, but Godwin and Edwin had lived in Dublin as boys when their father Harold had sought refuge there in 1051. When leaving Dublin, they had two choices. They could head south towards the Wicklow Mountains, or instead, and what is more interesting for us, they could head north by crossing the Liffey on a bridge that spanned the river at the western end of the city. On the northern end of the bridge lay the area that would become known as Oxmantown in the later medieval period. Situated in the Smithfield area of Dublin, it would become the first major suburb of the city on the northern banks of the Liffey, but even in the 11th century, people had started to live here. If they headed north, they would have travelled along what was known as the Great North Road, passing close to the site of the Battle of Clontarf. This battle, fought at the edge of Dublin Bay in 1014, had seen mercenaries arrive from across northwestern Europe. This battle at Clontarf appears to have been one of the largest battles of the era, but it was tiny by modern or even later medieval standards. Our understanding of warfare is shaped by monumental conflicts, such as the Battle of Stalingrad, which had millions of participants. However, on this famous field, north of Dublin, in 1014, there was, at most, a few thousand on either side. The Gaelic-Irish fought largely with swords and spears. Heavy cavalrymen did not really play a part. From the 9th century onwards, axes had become a major part of Gaelic warfare, having been introduced by the Vikings. Strangely, it appears bows and arrows were used very rarely in Ireland, and even when the Norse introduced them as a weapon of war, they don't appear to have been adopted by the Gaelic-Irish. While the Vikings frequently wore chainmail, such armour was not common in Ireland, where people made do with wood and leather shields. While it's unlikely our three Anglo-Saxons would have ventured far from Dublin, for the sake of the podcast, we will bring them on a most unlikely journey across the kingdom of the Southern O'Neills into the kingdom of Connacht, so we can explore rural Ireland a bit more. As they travelled into what was the interior of Ireland, they would have encountered a Gaelic society which in many respects was unique to other societies across Europe. Ireland had never been conquered by the Roman Empire and Roman influence was minimal. Due to this, Gaelic society in Ireland had diverged in its development when compared to other European societies which all grew from a common Roman ancestor. The population of Ireland in the 11th century was around 500,000, around 10% of the modern population. This population lived in dispersed settlements in extended kin groups. Land was held in common between these extended families, which could stretch between three and four generations. The concept of private property, as we understand it, did not exist. Nonetheless, a small group of powerful families had firm control over life, power and wealth in Gaelic Ireland. Across the island, Godwin, Edwin and Tostig would have found the majority of people living in or around Ringforths, circular enclosures the majority of which had been erected centuries earlier. These varied in size from the enormous, which could span 75 metres in diameter, to the more usual 25 to 30 metres. These Ringforths would have been visible in the landscape from their earthen walls topped with a wooden defensive palisade. These could be easily defended against small-scale casual violence, but not warfare. 
Inside the fort, depending on size, there were numerous structures, including houses, not dissimilar to those in Viking Dublin. However, life in ring forts can only have been far more healthy than the conditions in the cramped city we visited earlier. In Dublin, archaeologists have deciphered that the proximity of the city's cesspits, where human waste was dumped, to the water wells of the city can only have led, on occasion, to the pollution of the water supply. This would have led to severe illness. In rural ring forts, where space was not an issue, cesspits and wells could be kept far apart. Towns like Dublin did have its advantages though, particularly in times of war, when isolated ring forts did not stand a chance against larger raiding parties. Many ring forts had souterrains, which were underground stone-lined passages and chambers used as refuges in times of attack, a sort of medieval panic room. These could provide temporary security while a skirmish raged above, but given their widespread use, their existence could not really have been concealed for long. You can only imagine the terror among people hiding in the suit rain as a raiding party frantically tore the ring fort asunder, looking for the entrance and its human contents. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The landscape that three Anglo-Saxon exiles would have moved through in 1067 was unimaginably different to the modern landscape. Tree coverage was far less than we might imagine, given the vast majority of trees had been cut down in the prehistoric period. Nonetheless, in the 11th century, Ireland may have had tree coverage somewhere under 30%. This is substantially more than the 10% we see today. The forests of the medieval period were very different to modern Irish forests in their appearance and location. Firstly, they were deciduous, so oak and ash dominated, whereas coniferous varieties dominate today. In autumn and winter, these forests must have been immensely bleak places, as the bare outline of trees against the ever-darkening sky can only have made the prospect of passing through such a forest even more daunting for a traveller. This was no doubt worsened by the fact that the medieval stereotype of the outlaw in the forest appears to have been true. From later surviving records in the 13th century, we know that roads through forests were plagued with outlaws and rebels. There is little reason to expect anything different in the 11th century. These outlaws, though, were not the Robin Hood type. They just did the robbing part, 
but didn't share the loot. And in a world without DNA or cameras, the incentive to kill the victim was pretty high, given they were the only way one could be caught. As Godwin and his relatives pushed west, they would have eventually arrived at the Shannon River, the great barrier between the east and the Kingdom of Connacht in the west. There were two crossing points on the Shannon, at a ford, which was a low point in the river, at Atlone, and a bridge at the monastic settlement of Clonmacnoise. The bridge at Clonmacnoise, which had been originally built in the early 9th century, was a very impressive structure, over 300 metres long and just under 4 metres wide, supported by large wooden beams sunk 4 feet into the riverbed, the remains of which have been uncovered by archaeologists. No matter where one came from in northern Europe in the 11th century, a construction of this size across what was the largest river in Britain or Ireland could not but have impressed. Despite such great feats of engineering, Godwin and his companions would have travelled at what would have seemed to us a painstakingly slow speed, having to follow the contours of the natural environment around mountains and lakes and forests while following rivers until they found a ford or the rare bridge. This was all done on very poor roads. Medieval Ireland had very few surfaced roads. Most were well-worn paths, which were fine in summer, but in winter these turned into quagmires, and travellers were caked in mud, and their woollen clothes would have been sopping wet. These tracks wound their way through a landscape where vast prehistoric forests had given way to pastures hundreds if not thousands of years previously. In the 11th century, vast cattle herds, the symbols of wealth and Gaelic society, grazed these pastures. As a symbol of wealth, they were often targeted in war, and naturally herds were protected at all costs. One can only imagine the scene in 1201, when a Norman army led by John de Courcy swept into North Connacht, and the king, Cahal Carrack, had his herds driven to safety in South Connacht. The ground must literally have shook as they moved. While farming was the basis of the economy, it was not all pastoral. Godwin would have encountered fields of wheat, oats, barley and rye, and accompanying watermills used to grind these crops into flour. Passing through communities across Ireland, the one thing our three Saxon travellers would not have found were jails. Law and order in the 11th century operated in a completely different manner than it does today. Gaelic communities were regulated by a legal system, alien to us, known as the Breton Law Code. It was a sophisticated and complex legal system, transcending the political divisions of the island, and was administered and formulated by a trained legal class. This legal system has long been the subject of myth and fantasy, and was elevated by 19th century nationalists seeking to prove the island was idyllic before the Norman conquest. This was not the case. Nonetheless, Brehan law was different from other legal systems in that it appears to have put a greater focus on the victims rather than the perpetrator. Compensation to the victims or their family for crimes committed was a common aspect of this legal system. However, this was done in a manner which reflected the inequalities of Gaelic society. Each person's life was valued by what was called an honour price, and this, rather than the gravity of the crime, dictated the level of compensation. 
If the price was not paid, a violent vendetta could be launched by the family of the victim against the accused. Brehan law also covered a whole range of offences. For example, if you are injured through someone else's negligence, you are entitled to sick maintenance. Interestingly, couples were also entitled to divorce, something that would only return to Ireland in the later 20th century, although this probably says more about modern Ireland than medieval Ireland. When our Anglo-Saxon visitors stayed in Dublin, they were hosted by the King of Leinster, Diarmid Machmuel Namo. He no doubt held various feasts for them on several occasions. At such feasts, they would have been served meals based on bread and milk, supplemented with meat and vegetables such as onions, carrots, celery, wild garlic, peas, kale and beans. In autumn, this diet would have been supplemented with wild nuts and berries, which could be gathered. Meat served include beef, lamb and pig meat, which was eaten as pork or salted into bacon. Meat at royal feasts would also have been flavoured with spices, a limited amount of which was probably imported from the continent. We know that wine, at least, was imported in large quantities. At Dublin, the three Saxons would also have had access to imported foods like walnuts and plums, the remains of which have been found by archaeologists. In the West, such items, which had to be imported, must have been harder to come by. Delicacies like walnuts, plums and spices were limited to the elites of society. It does appear, though, that the poor did enjoy a diet with meat, given vast amounts of bones have been found in archaeological sites of all kinds. The poor probably ate shellfish as well, which was regarded as a low-status food. Some meats were forbidden, though. The eating of dog and carrion, what we call roadkill, animals which are not slaughtered but are found dead, was banned under Brehan law, while the eating of horse meat was forbidden by the church. The banning of eating dog meat was presumably something to do with the fact that the animal is a domestic pet, while carrion is dangerous to eat, as it can be the source of anthrax poisoning. Despite access to what was probably a balanced diet, medieval Ireland was never more than a bad harvest away from a famine, and during these times the poor would have starved. cannot visit medieval Ireland without referencing the church. The Christian church in Ireland had been heavily impacted by the Viking raids of the 9th and 10th centuries and the large-scale conflicts that dominated the 10th and 11th centuries. Increasingly during this period, the church lost its independence as it sought protection from the ruling families, who in turn began to dominate wealthy monasteries. If the visiting Saxons went to one major church site in Ireland, it most likely would have been the monastic town of Glendalough in County Wicklow. This was situated in the heart of Diarmid Machmuel Namo's kingdom of Leinster. Glendalough was very famous in medieval Ireland and attracted pilgrims from far and wide, but nonetheless it was frequently targeted in war. In 1013, Brian Baru's forces, led by his son Murkud, had sacked the monastery as part of their war against the kings of Leinster. It was burned again in 1020, and indeed, if Godwin, Edwin and Tostig had gone to the monastery in the late 1060s, it would have only been recovering from an attack in 1061. Despite these attacks, Glendalock, situated in a valley of outstanding beauty, had prospered and was one of the major centres in Leinster. Indeed, in the 11th century, it seems that monasteries like Glendalock may have been enjoying a renaissance of sorts, as the great artworks synonymous with the monasteries up until the Viking raids began to reappear, 
most notably through the outstanding work seen in the Cross of Kong made in the 12th century. Without doubt, it was in the 11th century that these Saxon visitors would have had a chance to see Glendalough in its full glory. Within two centuries, the Ireland which we have journeyed through in this episode would be irrevocably changed by the Norman invasion. This was best seen at Glendalough, which became a war zone reminiscent of the TV show Game of Thrones, as the Normans and Gaelic Irish battled for control of the monastic lands and the surrounding valleys. By the late 13th century, the area was ominously included in territories the Normans referred to as Tierra Guerre, the land of war, where massacres and brutal executions were all too frequent. The upcoming tour on Saturday, December the 1st, visits this spectacular region and retells its incredible history from a monastic town to a war zone. The day will include a tour of Glendalough monastic site and the surrounding valleys, then a visit to Castle Kevin, the Norman fortification in the region, and then finishing in Glenmalure, the spectacular valley where the Gaelic Irish destroyed several Norman armies in the 13th century. Tickets only cost €30 Euros for the entire day, but as I said earlier, places are strictly limited, so book your place now at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Finally, we cannot finish without giving the last word to our guides through medieval Ireland in this episode. It appears that Edwin Godwinson died in Ireland in 1067, while his brother Godwin led two major attacks on the west coast of Britain in the following years, supported by Diarmid, the King of Leinster. These attacks, however, never came anywhere close to destabilising the Normans in England. After this, all mention of the Anglo-Saxon exiles in Ireland ends. In the next episode, we will move Ireland closer to its state with destiny in 1167, when the first Norman mercenaries arrived in Ireland. Until then, Sloan. Don't forget to book your place now at irishhistorypodcast.ie or contact 86 That's 86 Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.